Can we give it up for Johnny and Mark? Just a reminder, they don't get paid to do this. This is awesome. At least I don't, I don't think you guys get paid, so sorry if I just outed you there. Oh, man, it is an honor to be here. It really is. I look out, and I, I've already seen so many guys have had such a good impact in my life, and it can honestly get me emotional just thinking about our past year and what it, what's represented in this room, that what we went through would not be possible if it wasn't without the support of our church family, without my family. I want to give a special shout-out to my dad. He drove from Stillwater, Oklahoma this morning, woke up at 4.30. So thanks, Dad, for coming. Appreciate being here. So what I want to talk to you guys about this morning is something that I believe every, every man wrestles with, and I believe we wrestle with it because God intends us to, and that's this idea of surrendering our purpose. But for my journey, I, ha- I can't start there. I've got to back up because you can't surrender a purpose you've never discovered, and I would argue that you can't discover your purpose until you've uncovered who you really are in Christ, who your real self is. So I want to talk about my journey through that lens, through that, through that threefold journey, but I want to pray for us first. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be a vessel for you, to be your mouth, to speak what you have spoken to me. I ask that you would open up our hearts, open up our eyes to hear from you this morning. You are a king, Jesus. You brought your kingdom here on earth, and we are here to bring it even more so on earth as it is in heaven. Here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that's what you've charged us with. So I thank you again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Like Johnny mentioned, I went to Oklahoma State University, uh, graduated from Stillwater High School, And when you're born into an OSU family, some of you may understand this. I already see a few OU shirts out there, so don't get mad at me, guys. But being born into an OSU family really puts you at a spiritual advantage. Let me tell you why. Uh, Just give me a second. It's because you learn to deal with failure and suffering very early on in your life. And I know you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like right when you think you're almost there, Iowa State game happens in 2011. It's just that close. So that provides the foundation for my story, being an OSU fan. I'm being serious with this. But my senior year of high school at Stillwater, you're able to take concurrent classes as a senior. I know that's not anything special in Stillwater. A lot of high schools have that opportunity. And so I took some classes in the fall semester, in the spring semester, get some college credit hours. And then part of the approval or the acceptance process for OSU, what they'll do at Stillwater, and this is serious, they'll do an on-the-spot admission at lunch at high school. Bring your turkey sandwich, bring your transcript, bring your application, and they'll give you the stamp of approval if you've got all the qualifications. That was the extent of my college search. For whatever reason, 18-year-old Blake was not very um, exploratory with college options. The only place I looked at, I loved my Cowboys. I don't regret it by any means because, obviously, it's led to where I am today, but that's what my acceptance was like at OSU. And what they have for incoming freshmen across the board at every university is a student orientation. Those of you who went to school know this. And if you've done some concurrent classes, you're able to do a sort of fast track version. So I remember showing up one day to student orientation. And uh, in my mind, I'm thinking, I'll get to tour the campus. We'll sing some songs, watch some old basketball games. This will be a great student orientation. Obviously, that's not what happens at all at student orientation. I walk in, and this guy hands me a piece of paper, and he says, pick a major. I am floored by this. Now, I realize in hindsight that I should have totally been expecting to pick a major at student orientation. It's kind of a, the bare minimum to plot your college career. But I'm looking at this piece of paper, and I'm seeing all these potential lives right in front of me. And that's, again, just how I operate. It was a very binary view of, all right, pick the right major, pick the right life, pick the wrong major, and I'm screwed forever. <laughs> Did not understand the concept of switching majors. 
because you can do that like it's the flavor of the month. I had friends that switched it felt like every semester. I just didn't get that. So I'm looking at this piece of paper. I see the business college, arts and sciences, engineering. I gravitate towards business. I said, okay, it sounds easy enough. You just need to have a good personality, talk to people. And I'm looking down this list, and there it is, sports management. And sports management is a relatively new major. Some of you are thinking, how in the world do you learn this at school? Do you just watch games? And As the sports industry has evolved, there's more of a need now to get people into the business side of it, to understand the industry. And I thought, well, I like sports. I can do management. Let's, let's go for sports management. Fast forward a couple years, I quickly realized that you can like sports and not work in sports. And you start hearing about uh, the salaries that you get working in ticket booths. I was like, ah, maybe not for me. So I dropped the sports, had a couple minors in marketing and economics, and had a great college career. I had a great GPA, I think it was 385 or something like that, great resume, so everything's looking great, and yet senior year, I still have no idea what I want to do with my life, and there's, there's winter break of your senior year when you know what question you're going to get asked when you go around family, when you go around friends, and it's what are you going to do after you graduate, and for a while, you hate saying, I have no idea, but you quickly realize, hey, I can wear this like a badge of honor, I have no idea, no idea what God has planned for me, and you start to turn it more into an advantage rather than a disadvantage. Um, but my senior year, I'm dating my, my now wife, uh, Sydney, and I'm thinking about doing my MBA, which really, for those of you that don't know much about an MBA for a business student, it's just for somebody that has no idea what they want to do, and so they take the same classes again for two years to get another degree. <laughs> there are good things about an MBA, and many of you, I'm sure, have them, but that, that's what I was tempted to do. Sydney, for whatever reason, didn't like the idea of dating a grad student. No idea why. It sounds, it sounds like a blast to me but decided to put on my oversized suit and tie, go to a career fair. And as an introvert, I reserve a special hatred in my heart for career fairs. And some of you might resonate with that. In my mind, I'm thinking, this is all a sham. It's a charade. Nobody cares here. Let's just skip this and get a job and move on. But this day, I'm actually feeling pretty good about myself. I have some great conversations with great companies. feel like I've got some good leads on my list. So I'm heading out at OSU, the career fairs at Gallagher Iba Arena. It's on the mezzanine level, so there's, it's a pretty big event. But I'm walking out towards the escalator, and this guy stands right in front of me, sticks out his hand, just real business-like. And, and I'm thinking, sir, my day is done. I am heading home. I'm going to sit in silence for an hour, read a book or something, just get away from people for a while. But he grabs me in, starts talking to me face-to-face. Turns out he's from this company called Otis Elevator Company. And he, it's intriguing. He, I mean, he puts a good sales pitch on, which, again, I should have been expecting. That's what you do in sales. You know how to give a good sales pitch. And um, I quickly learned that Otis is a part of a Fortune 50 company, great benefits, a really good opportunity to progress in my career, earning potential, all this stuff that you want to hear as a, as a 22-year-old. So I interview in Dallas, shadow guy in Austin, end up taking the job. Sydney was very happy that it wasn't grad school, although it was Oklahoma City. So she's from Tulsa. One thing to know about Tolson's, and some of you may know this, that she just hates Oklahoma City, and I have no idea why. We found a great church, we found some great friends, great restaurants, and it was never good enough. So we're th- we were there for a couple years, but um, I remember, I remember um, when I got there my first day, <clears throat> I accepted this job, and you guys will laugh because I'm a millennial, and this is a very millennial thing to feel. My first day, I walk into work, and I feel like this existential angst, like, this is the rest of my life. I'm going to wake up, I'm going to drink my coffee and go to work, and that is it. That's all my life will entail for the next 40, 50 years. Again, I realize this is a very millennial thing to think. So I do well at this company a couple years, 
I do well in the sales rankings, all of these things that you want to do well in. Um, but I'm approached about a job in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma with a professional recruiting firm. And again, um, Sydney's from here. Everything lined out. Everything seemed to be like this was the right move to take, so we took it. Um, and I wrestled with the same mindset of this idea of purpose and, and, and what I'm doing is does it matter. And again, these are, these are new concepts back you guys may resonate with this, or your dads may resonate with this. Back in the day when the Industrial Revolution hit, the modern theory of management hit, all you cared about was just getting a decent paycheck and being alive when you went home to your family. You didn't care about what philanthropy your company supported. You didn't care about a sleek office. Am I going to have a ping pong table? Are there free snacks? You really didn't even care about benefits. You just wanted a fair wage and to stay alive on the job. Um, so we took this job to Tulsa, and I'm making more money than I ever thought I would in my mid-20s. We have both cars paid off. We're able to travel around the world. We have the only debt is our mortgage. And life is great. And we're living the American dream. And you can probably see where this is going. In March, I get a text from Brian Job. And this text, all it says is, hey, Blake, when you have a minute, I have a quick question. And I'm sitting there thinking, he's going to ask me to work at the church, isn't he? There's nothing in that text that said it. But it's one of those texts, kind of like when your girlfriend would say, hey, can we talk? You know exactly what's going to happen. <laughs> So I call Brian, lays it out there. He's very quick to say, hey, I'm just throwing this out there. You can throw it right back in my face if you want to. And it was intriguing. So I, I go home, talk to Sydney. And I think she quickly switched the subject to what are we going to have for dinner because she wanted to pretend like this wasn't an option. And not because she doesn't like Church on the Move. She's been going here her whole life. Her parents have been going here since the beginning, but she just never imagined marrying a pastor, never imagined marrying into the church. And I don't blame her. I don't blame her at all. But we, we pressed in. We prayed, we prayed, we prayed, we sought counsel, and it became apparent this was the next step for us, so we took it, and here I am. That's a very condensed version of the story uh, that I have, so much more there, but I wanted to give it to you to frame what I want to talk about next, and it was this idea of discovering my real self, discovering my purpose, and learning to surrender my purpose. Those of you that have been around Church on the Move for any amount of time may notice something about that journey is that it is a a no-grow-discover-go-journey, no discover journey. and uh, yes, that is a shameless plug for no-grow-discover-go. Some of you might be thinking, when are you guys going to stop talking about this thing? And the answer is never. We will never stop talking about this, because it's the vision that we believe God has for us throughout the course of our life. Those of you that don't go to church here, we believe that God wants to take everybody on a journey of knowing Him, of growing in freedom, of discovering purpose, and going and making a difference. Uh, before I jump into those three points, I want to talk about something I've noticed in the culture I've noticed in the church world, not necessarily here at Church on the Move, but I've just, I've just heard it. I noticed that my last job as a recruiter, and it's this wave of people saying it, it's more about who you're becoming than what you do, who you are is more important than what you do. And I, I'll be honest, I take issue with that for a couple reasons. The first is that I just don't see that in the scriptures. And I want to read you guys something from Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. <clears throat> Keep in mind, this is the very first thing that God says to mankind in the garden. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Do you guys see what that is? It's a job description. It's like God is handing them a piece of paper with responsibilities and he's gotten bullet points. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He's telling them what to do from day one when the Garden of Eden is very, he calls it very good, but he's telling them, this place that you see, this good creation, I want you to go make the whole world like this. Go take the world somewhere, advance it. Use the raw materials that I've put in this earth to, to build something. So I would say that what we do, what we do is central to who we are as humans. 
The second reason why I take issue with this and why I think you all would take issue with this is because after this breakfast, you have to, have to, you have to head to this place called work, and you can't waltz in and say, you know, boss, can, we, can you come here really quick? I, I just want to, I know I have a lot to do today, but I want to focus on who I'm becoming, on who I'm being. Is that okay? Cool, cool. That would not go over well. You will, you're spending half, over half your life at work. How can God say what you do doesn't matter as much as who you're becoming? I'm not minimizing that who you are is important, but God never asks you to make that tension. He's holding both of these together and saying who you are is important, but also what you do is important. The reason I say that is because I want, it's a big part of my journey, and I just feel like some guys in here need to hear that, that what you do is important, your work, your calling, your vocation, your purpose. None of it can be removed from God's plans for your life, and it matters to him, and he wants you to see that it matters for his kingdom. Even as, as small as you think it might be, if you're an IT specialist or if you're a customer support rep, support rep, that it matters to the kingdom. So the first step on this journey for me was knowing my real self, discovering my real self. This may sound cheesy. It may sound, I think this guy's going to start quoting Oprah. Um, but it is, it's a serious business, and it, it matters deeply to me based on my journey this year. Um, our culture is telling you that you can be yourself, that you can be anybody you want to be, that reach for the stars, the world is your oyster. And while that sounds great, what ironically happens is that in trying to be ourselves, we become anything but ourself, anything but our real self. We imitate others, we admire, we see platforms out there and we want to copy somebody else. And in copying somebody else, you lose sight of who God has made you to be. And God, God slowly but surely started to reveal this to me that it was like overnight for years, a construction crew had been hired to just work on me and you don't notice it. I don't know if you guys have felt like this. You wake up one day and it's not like you're living in sin. Your false self isn't living in sin. It's built on half truths and that's what's so dangerous about it because you don't notice it. Uh, one of the books that I read during this time period really impacted me was a book called The Gift of Being Yourself. Again, I know it's a cheesy title. It is not written by Oprah. It is written by David Benner. He's a Christian psychologist. Um, it was incredibly formative to me. One of the best books that I've ever read. I actually brought a copy here today. First hand I see gets a, a free book. I saw Austin. So what Benner talks about is this idea of you having a false self and you having a true self. And it's important to realize that your false self isn't sinful. And my false self is dropping this microphone right now. Matt, I think I lost this. Can I just stuff this in my pocket? Okay. Okay. So your true self is built on who God made you to be. You cannot know your true self without knowing God. To begin to know God is to begin to know your true self, and you cannot know your true self if you've never taken this journey of knowing God. Pastor Witt likes to say it this way, you can't meet the real Jesus until you face the real you. It's the same principle. Here's a quote from Benner in the book. People who have never developed a deep personal knowing of God will be limited in the depth of their personal knowing of themselves. Failing to know God, they will be unable to know themselves as God is the only context in which their being makes sense. We do not find our true self by seeking it. Rather, we find it by seeking God. My problem for so long is that I was holding these things separately. I had a pursuit of God, I had a pursuit of purpose, and I thought they were separate. So I, it's like two different worlds that you have to live in for a period of time around and pursue my purpose, pause, pursuing God, advancing, pause, going back and forth. But what Benner is saying is that these things cannot be separated. They're inherently together. Another Benner quote, everything that is false about us arises from our belief that our deepest happiness will come from living life our way, not God's way. 
Although we may say we want to trust God and surrender to his will, deep down we doubt that God is really capable of securing our happiness. And that was me. My false, my false self was in charge of my life. And that doesn't mean I was full of sin. It just means I was still holding on to this idea of who I thought I was supposed to be. I'm the son of a businessman who's the son of a businessman. I got a business degree, had a personality that suited business. I did well in business. And yet at the same time, man, I'm growing in my love for the scriptures. I'm reading all these books. I'm leading a small group. I'm involved in mountain men. I'm, doing, I'm on this go team that helps out with certain things at the church. And it's like, which one is my real self? Which one is my false self? Do I need to distinguish this, God? How do I know which one it is? I also like the, to call the false self the resume self. During my time as a recruiter, I got a front row seat to many versions of the resume self. Uh, part of my job was sitting down with individuals to hear about their experience. And I can tell you time and time again, I'm talking to somebody and I'm hearing about their experience and I'm looking at their experience on paper and it is a completely different person. And I quickly realized that the resume is the personal version of a blank check, that you can be whoever you want to be on this piece of paper. You can be proactive, multitasking, take initiative, and you don't have to bring any of that experience to the table to put on the resume. You can, you can, it's all about appearances. You can be whoever you want to be. I honestly think that the resume gets at some of the biggest questions in humanity. And if you look at the evolution of the resume, what used to be kind of a bare minimum now, it's people fill every square inch because they've been conditioned to think that who I really am needs an improvement. I have to do whatever it takes to improve myself. It's the resume self. I've encountered this in different ways throughout my life, uh, but the fear for me has been a fear of, of not being good enough. And one example from childhood, some of you may laugh, but I always battled this fear, especially in sports, and some of you have experienced that as well, and in particular basketball. I remember vividly that when I would shoot Say I'd shoot two or three times in the first half, the voice in my head would say, ball hog, stop shooting. You're just giving yourselves more chances. You're giving yourself more chances to miss. You need to stop shooting. That bled over into my, that's bled over into my adult life. As an introvert, as an INTP, I'm very surgical with my words. I don't ramble. I hate wasting words. And so anytime I talk in front of a group setting, the voice I hear says, stop talking, stop sharing. You're going to say something stupid if you keep going. I'm battling those voices right now, if I'm being honest with you guys. And that's why I have notes, because I don't trust myself. Your real self, your true self, honors what is actually true about you and not what you want to be true. So I would ask you guys this. In what ways are you giving your false self power over your life? Is your false self leading your family? Is it leading your team at work? Is it leading your career journey? People need your real self, even if you don't think it's good enough. God can work with not good enough. He died for not good enough. One psalm to pray in this journey that I found very helpful for me, you guys have heard it, Psalm 139, and in particular, verses 22 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So that was my first stage, discovering my real self. It's the base layer of the cake. This next layer was this idea of discovering my purpose. It's the second layer. And I would say that your purpose flows out of knowing who you are in Christ and that you can't discover your God-given purpose until you've uncovered your God-given identity. It works in that order. So what is purpose? The Oxford Dictionary defines purpose as the reason for which something is done or created or for which something exists. Think of so many people we know from the scriptures. You've got Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, Jesus. And this journey worked for them too. There was a moment I think of Isaiah in particular in Isaiah 6 when God reveals to Isaiah who he is. There's this radical deconstruction and reconstruction of his character, and then he gives him the mission that he has for him. So it's, a, it's that twofold journey. Uh, I want to say something, and I want you guys to, to pay attention to the first thoughts that go through your head when I say this, for your first honest thoughts. Uh, 
You have a specific God-given purpose. You have a specific God-given purpose. And I would imagine that you're thinking one of three things. One is that you believe it and you found it. Two is that you believe it's there, but you haven't found it yet. And three, some of you probably thought, if you're being honest, BS. I don't. I've tried, and it just doesn't work. Those of you in the first category, praise God, keep after it. But I just want to remind you that this isn't a one-time thing. Discovering your purpose is a never-ending journey with many twists and turns. I remember when I first accepted this job, I was tempted to tell God, all right, that's the one big ask that you have of me throughout my life. No more. You can't do anything else. That's, that's not how it works. He can ask you to do as many things as he wants you to. I have no idea. A year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, no idea what, what is there. But honestly, that's where God wants us because your real self lives by faith and your false self wants to live by sight and wants to see everything in front of you. For those in the last two categories of not knowing what it is or not believing that you have it, it is okay to be in that spot. I have been in that spot as well. Sometimes I'm still in that spot. But remember that Abraham, Abram was 75 years old when God called him to the land of Canaan. Moses was 80 years old when he first approached Pharaoh. Jesus was 30 years old when he started his ministry. There's this period of not only obscurity, but this wilderness of wrestling with your purpose, almost like Jacob wrestled, um, wrestled with God about what he was supposed to do. And it's supposed to be that way. The wrestling isn't bad. Embrace it. I would go so far as to say this, that you will never discover your purpose in isolation. And we don't have time to talk about the how-to in this. I just want to encourage you guys to take a next step. You can't do it in isolation. Talk about this with your closest friends. Talk about this with your small group. Um, For me, it was through different books, being on a go team, through the ministry of my friend Dave Jewett that's here, uh, Mountain Men, and so much more. Don't think that a next step always has to be switching jobs. Please don't go home telling your wife that this guy at Men's Breakfast told you to brush up the resume and put it on Monster and go find a new job. But honestly, for some of you, that might be your next step. It might be something that you have yet to surrender to the Lord, this idea of your vocation, your calling, your work, and he wants, he wants everything that you have to surrender to him. Uh, so the third, the third prong here, um, surrendering your purpose, knowing my real self, discovering my purpose, and then finally learning to surrender it. It's a crossroads. You found this stuff out about yourself. Will you now do something with it? It's important to know that surrendering your purpose is spiritual warfare because the enemy wants nothing more than for you to keep your purpose to yourself, for you to keep it nice and tidy and always keep it in your back pocket just for you to access when you want to. And this isn't a, day, this isn't a one-time surrender. It's a daily death, you have, daily death you have to die so that you may have true life in Jesus. And it's because our enemy is very real and he does not have a hidden agenda. His agenda is that he wants to take you out. He will do whatever it takes to take you out. But his tactics, while his agenda isn't hidden, his tactics are sometimes harder to identify. He might take you out by giving you everything you ever wanted. He might take you out by giving you a platform and influence because he knows it'll get to your head. He might take you out by giving you all the money in the world because because he knows that that's where your trust really lies. So he's happy to give you that stuff. Am I saying that those things are evil in and of themselves? Absolutely not. But what I am saying is be careful with these good gifts. So what does the enemy do to keep us from surrendering our purpose? What are some of his tactics? I'm not going to give you guys an exhaustive list, but I am going to talk about three that he's used on me. <clears throat> the first is, uh, is the American dream. Believe it or not, the enemy can use the American dream. He can use the American dream on you. For me, again, I found myself in my mid-20s with a great life on paper. Everything looked amazing. Many of you have great jobs, and you have been tempted to keep the status quo. You have benefits. You have security in your company. Why would you risk any of this? Now, don't get me wrong. This is a huge advantage to living in America, but if I could give you a word of caution, read the story of Israel. 
they never did well with blessing. Never did well with blessing. And one story in particular, you know, it is a story of the actual Exodus. And Moses, <clears throat> Moses and Aaron bring the people out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They bring them to this place called Mount Sinai. They're camping out there while Moses is out in the mountain. He's talking with God, getting the Ten Commandments, getting these other laws that are very good. They're new rules of engagement for how Israel is supposed to live, but not only live, to flourish. So Moses is this partner with God to help Israel. And one day Moses is taken a little longer than the Israel, Israelites would like. And so they get, they get restless. They get annoyed. Their annoyance um, eventually gives birth to sin. And they tell Aaron to make a God for them. And so they've got this brand new jewelry that they had brought out of Egypt. So they, um, they give this all to Aaron and Aaron builds them a golden cow and they start worshiping this cow and they say, thank you for bringing us out of Egypt. We will follow you. Moses is right there on the mountain. They can see the smoke and fire on the mountain. And yet they were tempted with this blessing. Lest you start making fun of Israel for doing this, let me remind you that you have done this as well, <clears throat> as have I. We take the blessings that God has given us and we quickly turn them into idols we put them on a platform and we worship them. But you and I don't worship like the Israelites in the form of burnt offerings. We worship with time and money and we put that on the altar of a bigger house, a nicer car, a promotion, and we take that away from our family and from our, and from our Lord and Savior. The enemy is happy to hand out the American dream so long as it keeps you from seeing God as your source and Jesus as Lord. I want to repeat again that these things are not evil in and of themselves, but what I am saying is that we constantly need to be taking stock of where our worship is, where our trust is, and where our hope is found. One of my favorite writers, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this really interesting book called The Screwtape Letters. Some of you may have heard it. It's a, it's a very unique, weird read. Some people stop after reading the very beginning of it. It's, it's essentially written from the perspective of a demon. Um, this demon is named Screwtape. He's writing to his nep- nephew, Wormwood, and they're talking about how do you take a human out? How do you mess with these guys? They're, they're intricate. They're the image of God. So how, you can't just kill them. How do you take them out? He has this to say about the temptation of getting the American dream, essentially, everything you want. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. Again, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying be careful. The enemy knows your heart. He knows what he can trip you up with. Number two is apathy. I've been in this boat as well. If the enemy uses the American dream to put your purpose in things, then he'll convince you that you don't have a purpose. And again, I know many of you have been there. In that third category, when I ask you to think about you have a specific God-given purpose, those of you that called me, uh, said, they said BS on that. Um, that's okay. That's okay. The enemy has probably used this on you, and he will tell you that it's, that it's really only those that have truly heard from God that have their purpose, and he will tell you that it's reserved for a special group of people. He will tell you that you're alone and that you're the only one on planet Earth that hasn't identified their purpose, and it's key to realize that he is a, a very good liar and that you're not alone. The thing is, I know you guys have, it's, it's like you've never, it's not like you've never tried to find your purpose. The reason why many of us give up hope is that we've tried what we think will work, and when it doesn't, we give up. You've gone through your next move. You've taken every assessment that you can find online, um, and nothing has worked. The enemy uses apathy to tell you there's no harvest for your sowing. He tells you that no matter how many seeds you plant in the ground, no fruit will come out of it. He, honestly, he wants to take you out before you even begin. But I want to remind you that your job is to sow seeds, we are farmers. There's all these metaphors in the Bible about us being farmers, so seeds of purpose. Um, I've heard it put another way by a pastor that our job is to stack logs. It's like we're building this campfire internally. Your job is to stack logs, believing that God will provide the flame. But honestly, what ends up happening is most of us gather a couple leaves, we get some wet bark, we get a few twigs, 
And we get mad when God isn't lighting this. When the logs are there, he will light it. It will come. Again, Abram was 75. Moses was 80. Keep stacking those logs. So we have the American dream, apathy. The third is, is an attack. Um, like Johnny mentioned, like many of you are well aware, what my family, and specifically my wife, Sydney, uh, has gone through these past, these past few months. Um, we were at the, at the lake for the 4th of July weekend. Things were great. We weren't doing anything risky. She was literally sitting in a hammock reading a book. And I go to sit next to the hammock that's next to her. And I notice the sinking sensation when I sit in a hammock, but that's normal when you sit in one. And all of a sudden, my butt's on the ground, and I have just enough time to see this tree come crashing down right into her forehead. Absolute silence. This tree didn't have any branches. I didn't have time to yell her name. She didn't have time to look up. Honestly, it was probably best that she didn't. So I run over and I see my wife unconscious and staring right back at me. And of course, I can't help but imagine the worst. She finally, finally comes to, but can't move, obviously concussed, asking all these questions. Um, we get a life flight to St. Francis and I take an hour and a half drive by myself to Tulsa. It was the worst drive of my life. So I get to the hospital. We find out that night from the neurosurgeon that uh, it's an unstable fracture, that she won't be able just to give this time that we need to do a surgery. So they fuse some vertebrae together and put a couple rods in and some screws, and we're there, we're there a week. And honestly, in the middle of that week, um, I won't say life was good, but it, life was interesting because we had in-laws and my parents shuffling the baby back and forth. People are bringing me breakfast, lunch, dinner. I got my books. It's like, man, I know this sucks for my wife. And this sucks for me, but this is like, people are kind of taking care of us here. And then you go home. And that's when the real battle started. And I'm taking care of a, of a wife and a one-year-old that's on the verge of moving around and wants to play with mom. That was the hardest thing for me was seeing my wife not be able to be a mom in the capacity that she wanted to be. The thing about attacks as a Christian is that we always win. Now, I know some of you have gone through much worse. It's ended worse than what happened to me, and I don't want to minimize any of that. But I do want to point you to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. One thing the enemy loves to put on the end of attacks is confusion. It's the what if game. What if you had prayed more that day? What if the tree had just been six inches forward? What if God really loved you? Why didn't he stop this? He could have. He's powerful, right? These questions, if, if you're not careful, they can ruin you. And if you don't come in already surrendered to the Lord, this was a month after I'd started at the church. We were without health insurance. It was prime opportunity for the enemy to do something. And yet, you may have heard it put this way, that God only gives him enough, he only gives the enemy enough rope to hang himself and the fact that I'm here today to get to talk to you guys about this is exactly what I prayed for. Not necessarily a platform to talk about this, but just to remind him of what his destiny is and that he attacks in a battle that he's already lost and that when he attacks you, it's in a battle that he's already lost and that you win no matter what. So I don't know where you stand in this journey. Um, some of you might be on it. Some of you, it might be coming in the future, this idea of surrendering our purpose, but I wouldn't be doing my job as a disciple if I didn't point you to my rabbi, Jesus, and that even Jesus, the king of the universe, had to surrender his purpose. And he had to grow. He had to discover it. There was this process with Jesus. Yes, he was God, so that was a little bit of an, of an advantage for him. But he was also human, so don't minimize his humanity. Philippians says that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Luke's gospel says that Jesus grew and increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The gospels are littered with statements of Jesus proclaiming his purpose. He had a crystal clear view on what God put him on this earth to do. No one in the history of the world has lived a more purpose-filled life than Jesus, and yet he still had to surrender it. For Jesus, who he was and what he did perfectly coincided with one another. There was, no, there was no tension for him. It's just like it's supposed to be with us. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying to the Father, and he says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will, as you will. The ultimate prayer of surrender, and eventually the ultimate act of surrender, the cross. Here's this man, Jesus, that never asked us to do something that he didn't do himself. So my story, while you may have gotten something out of it, I want, I want you to remember Jesus, who did this for you. Have you been trying to find your purpose apart from a relationship with him? What if Jesus has wrapped up your purpose in him so that the only way you find it is by seeking him? Seek your purpose alone and you won't find it, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, and that includes your purpose. Appreciate you guys.